Hi folks, how are you? I hope this finds you well. Uh, thank you so much for choosing to listen to another episode of Soundtracking, or maybe it's your first, so welcome along. This is my weekly podcast where I get to talk about uh, the wonderful role of music in film and television. We just went to see New Gardens of the Galaxy at the cinema this weekend, which was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Loads of great music in it. It's very, very good. Very sad as well. Very poignant. So, um, Definitely a few tears shed, but also what was phenomenal about it was I love the trailers. I love one of the things as well as watching the actual film at the cinema is that thing where the trailer, now it's time for the trailers. I was, yes, uh, which annoys my family immensely. But um, a couple of the trailers that were up there were Oppenheimer. Oh my gosh, it looks so great. The new Mission Impossible film as well. And The Flash. Ah, oh, the trailer for that looks immense and also the new Mission Impossible just, yeah. So three films that we had trailers for that I'm super excited about. And needless to say, we are, we've already got the requests in to try and get someone to come and represent those films on this podcast. So fingers crossed. Send, send your positive manifestation vibes our way, please, if you can, so that that, uh, that happens. We'll keep you posted, obviously. But our latest episode of Soundtracking is with Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, who are the directors of Meet Me in the Bathroom. Now, this is a documentary that's based on Lizzie Goodman's book of the same name. And the film tells the story of the rebirth of the New York rock scene at the turn of the millennium features incredible footage, really brilliant documentary footage of bands like The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, LCD Sound System, The Moldy Peaches, and so it gives me absolute joy ah, to begin with the Moldy Peaches track, NYC is like a graveyard. I was trying to work out, well, and Dylan, how long ago it was since that fateful night where we did it. <laughs> I, I knew this where was going to Did you know this was going to be the start? Yeah. Where we emotionally said goodbye to LCD Sound System and then whatever, how many years later, they're back again. But that was a fun night. It was. I can't remember it. Did you not just have a baby? I had, yeah. And then uh, I was very nervous and the event was sponsored by Stella. And I think think whilst the film was showing, I, I... enjoyed the fruits of that sponsorship a bit too much from what I remember. Well, also what I've seen on the internet constantly since then. So. <laughs> oh, well, listen, it's so nice yeah. to see you again. And oh God, I had such a moment watching this film, Meet Me in the Bathroom. And I, I'd read Lizzie's book and I'd actually chatted to her. I spoke to, she's really good mates with Katie Tunstall and I had them both on a, a podcast that I do. And so it was amazing to get to talk to her about it as well. And she was really excited about, about this, about, about it having an interpretation from someone else, you know what I mean? And so I felt like I was reliving a very big chunk of my life watching this film, to be honest, because um, I was at MTV at the time and started Radio 1 in like 2003. So this was like, I mean, not that I can remember much about it, to be honest, a bit like that, shut up and play the hits night, to be honest for you, mm-hmm. Dylan. But what was it about, about that whole era and time in Lizzie's book that you, that you wanted to kind of tell the story visually and interpret it in your way 
you know, obviously we had some history with James and LCD Sound System, but we weren't really sure we were going to do another music documentary. And then a friend of mine worked at the publishers in England and gave me the galleys of the book. And I yeah. just started reading. And about four hours later, I was still reading. And it was so kind of like, it just, t- I, I love oral histories. I love the kind of like dialogue going back and forth between the characters. But the thing that was most attractive about it was sort of, well, once you got over the initial depression of how long ago it, it was, <laughs> it suddenly made me feel old. But it was just how different the world was back then. And we thought yeah. it was a chance to sort of tell a story that, you know, we knew we couldn't do what the book does because it's, you know, expansive and it, it and very kind of forensic and like goes, there's like 200 characters. But we knew the strength of a film would be that we could recreate that time. We could drop people back into 20 years ago when the internet was just a relatively new thing. No one had yeah. mobile phones. And, you know, the world was about to change culturally, politically, technologically, and it almost seemed sort of, you know, despite the fact that it's debauched and, you know, rock and roll, it almost seemed quite innocent. And yeah. the idea of making a time capsule that took people back there or or if they're young, you know, now showed them what the world was like before they were TikToking. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the form of it as well was interesting to us. The idea that we had not made a film that was purely archived before, and I think that idea of being able to, well, making a film purely from, you know, the recordings and photographs and video from back then was a really interesting challenge. I mean, it, it didn't always feel like a good idea when when we were doing it, but yeah. but the idea of it was good. Well, like you say, like back then it was like the. I mean, I I don't I've got like the odd kind of box of actual photographs that I took. Do you know what I mean? Like it was that that was the that was the era. That was the time like you had disposable cameras or you'd have a little camera or I started taking pictures then as well. Like that's one of my pictures behind me from Karen O at Glastonbury 2009. You know, so the idea of there being this much footage and photography around us is is incredible. And so. I wanted to talk a little bit about about that journey because I imagine that reading the book and is it both of you that are big Moldy Peach Peaches fans? Because I was so my heart like skipped a beat really when they sort of started the journey really in the film and it's like oh my god I love it and so knowing what you you were able to what footage you had would I guess dictate who was in the film the journey that it took how you had those connective pieces between all these pieces. So did you kind of have to wait until you, you got a hold of everything to then, or how did it work? What was the sort of process of working out what the narrative would be really, or the journey of the film? Well, it, it, it's a bit, a bit of both really. So when, when we, you know, you start with your ideal version of the film, we, we, we essentially did a writer's room, like you would for a TV show. We kind of sat with and we looked at, you know, what we, we knew we had 90 or 100 minutes to tell the story and we're like well what can what can we get to and how can we kind of retain the spirit of the book but also make it its own thing and so we started kind of pulling at those threads and we actually wrote the film from start to finish wow. which fine on paper but then you kind of get to the process of making the film and you're you are in a way beholden to what 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 exists out there so it was a weird one because we've never made a archive only film before so we went into the edit probably with 10 percent of the archive that would eventually make up the film and it was a, a process of building it and hoping that things would come in so over 18 months two years the process was 
search, like detective work, reaching out to people that we found on old message boards, like looking at photographs and seeing there's a mini disc player on the table in the back of shot and just finding out who the photographer was, who the journalist was. You know, it was a, it was a really it was really rewarding process, but at times it was like, how the hell are we going to tell this part of the story? Because we really have no leads. It was, I mean, it was detective work. It was, it was not filmmaking like we've known it in in the past. And then, yeah. but on the Moldy Peaches thing, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a massive Moldy Peaches fan. Will is as well, and we kind of wanted to open with them because they just seem to have that wide-eyed innocence that that yeah. you know we saw the we saw the stories in this film as kind of coming of age stories that was the yeah. analogous thing that, that when we were sort of constructing the story you know Karen O is this shy girl that comes to a new city discovers this kind of underbelly and creates a new persona and so they all kind of fit into this notion of coming of age and James you know came of age in his 30s but it, it, we just wanted that kind of universal hook and with with the Moldy Peaches, it was just, you know, you can't help but fall in love with those two people. They're just such, yeah. you know, beautiful people. And I loved the music at the time because of its naivety and just it was like, oh, I couldn't, but you think, oh, I could make music like that. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, and but to have them reform for the premiere. That's America, amazing. Like, you That's How did that come about? I'm not sure. We just asked them, I think. I think, I think yeah. we were looking for some of the bands to come and like uh, Moldy Peaches were the first, yes. You're talking about it being archive footage as well. Did you do any kind of, you know, kind of present day interviews with any of the bands and, and what were their, what was their kind of um, temperament around kind of revisiting that whole, you know, that whole area and that start and, and journey of, of for them personally as well? Well, I mean, we tried to tell a story as much as we could from original recordings from from back then you know so like dylan said interviews with journalists that print interviews that they'd kept a mini disc recorder of or whatever you know and tv interviews any interviews we could find we we tried to sort of piece the story together like using those recordings because it's a different perspective when you're in it rather yeah. than 20 years later Absolutely. i also think that that all of these bands are still making music today so our, our approach was we didn't want to do that like vh1 behind the music like yeah 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 wasn't it great back then kind of um perspective and so we, we were really keen that the bands were involved and they all were in terms of like they were amazing at providing us with archive and pointing us in the right direction and then towards oh. the end of the process we did do contemporary interviews with them but it was mainly to kind of give certain moments context or to create the connections we needed between scenes. Um, we yeah. never wanted it to take you out of that, that moment. But they, they were brilliant. Like, uh, you know, we had lots of conversations with, with most of them kind of early on, just conversations that weren't recorded, just trying to get their perspective on that time and, and then helping point us in the right direction of like, you should speak to this guy who filmed this thing or, or that, you know, that kind of thing. So, We'd sort of spoken to lots of them early on and then, you know, revisited certain certain characters who we wanted to, yeah. you know, we needed an extra line here or there or whatever. It's really interesting because obviously like all of them make up the kind of, almost the kind of characters within the film, but with each band, you could almost have made a film about each band's narrative because with each band, there's a, there's a different kind of, there's something different going on with each of them, which... 
I found so interesting. You know, the strokes I probably knew the most about sort of thing as well. But what I loved about the footage and stuff that you had of that was that God notoriously hard to interview. Jesus <laughs> Christ. You like when you see you've got to interview the strokes, you're like, oh God, no. Because they just hate doing interviews. Well, most Julian specifically. But there's some lovely moments like where he because he normally shuts down in front of camera whenever there's some someone trying to be intrusive on him. And but you just get this lovely footage that you kind of feel really you get to kind of really see him in a way. And I think that that's really, really nice. And the cardinal stuff is it's really interesting as well for, you know, female perspective of that and those kind of shots. You've got the photographers literally with their cameras up our skirt and stuff like that. And you're going. God, you don't think about that at the time when you're at that gig and you're watching her and she's just, you know, you're, yeah, you could have had a whole film about that in a way as well. That must have been kind of part of the tricky side of the job, I guess, kind of keeping those compacts in a way for each band. It, it was the biggest, the biggest challenge definitely was like, how do you incorporate all these quite involved narratives and, you know, not have it become too fragmented. So it was something that we were always conscious of but i mean we we love the contrast between the different bands because you know people think of it as this scene but yeah the strokes and interpol couldn't be more different aesthetically and then you know you have the whole like brooklyn art punk scene which again is completely different and then what james was doing infusing dance music with punk is completely different and i think the idea of a new york scene was kind of in a weird way put on to it by the English music press because they love yeah. to have something to get behind. But we were quite keen to explore the sort of contrasts and differences because those guys, you know, you think of a scene, you think they're all hanging out in a bar together, but yeah. them, they were like, oh yeah, we'd, we'd bump in, into each other at a festival in Tokyo, but that, that was it. It was, you know, it wasn't like they were all part of this kind of romantic New York scene where they all hung out. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was the sort of fascinating thing. And, and the frustrating thing was like, you know, trying to get it all in without it becoming so condensed to that. Yeah. Area, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you have this kind of, we're just talking about it without talking about the music here, but like you, at the beginning, you think, well, this track's got to be in the film or this performance from this yeah, artist has to be in the film. And then you, you know, you realize you're making a film about a load of different people when, and it's not as simple as that. I mean, to be honest, that's the case in any music film, you sort of think, these tracks are definitely going in the film before you start editing. And then, you you know, you, you realize that narratively this, this track makes more sense than that one or, or whatever. Or you, when they do the final uh, budget, tying up the, yeah. cost of the archive, you're like, Oh shit, we can't, oh, <laughs> so anymore, it's like, cut all the music out. <laughs> how, yeah, I, was gonna, I mean, how did you navigate that? Cause you've got, there's, there's also score in there. There's there's mm-hmm. little beautiful bits of cue in there as well in between you know the the stories and the clips of of whatever it is and then you've got Frank Sinatra in there as well and talk to me a little bit about how you navigated that side of things because you know if you've got the bands on the side you'd hope that they would be kind of like oh yeah you could have mates rights but maybe that wasn't the case yeah I I mean then often not in charge of that so it was which is weird like, isn't it yeah. Yeah, it's really, really, weird. really weird. It's like I know that sometimes they sell on their, you know, bands sell their their catalog and whatnot and stuff. But yeah. you'd think you'd, they would still have a bit of kind of artistic license with stuff like that, particularly supporting other creatives. Yeah, I mean, the greatest experience we had of that was on the Blur documentary we made because we were making it with the record labels, so it was you know literally access to the entire 
catalog and you could cram as much. I think for our first documentary, we 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 kind of had that luxury. So then when you and then with James and LCD doing Sharp and Play the Hits, obviously that was a concert film, so everything's yeah. in there. This is the first time we really had to like you know have those kind of conversations about what do we keep and what do we kill because yeah. you know there were the finite amount that can go into it and then also it's you know that thing of like do we want just the hits or one of my favorite bits is the liars performance at the um car park show and yeah sometimes you just see a performance is like that's the energy of that has to be in the film so you kind of build a sequence around that we had to write a letter to frank's the frank sinatra estate as well uh yeah, well, Dylan did. I, I can't take any credit for that. Uh, Dylan to say yes. I probably have it on my laptop here. I'm not going to. I'm not going to read it. It's no, but do you? Who just, I mean, you. I mean, I'm assuming you have a person that you send it to, sort of thing. But it's kind of, I mean, it's used beautifully. I'm glad that they gave it to you because I think it's just, it's, it's really why that particular song. I d- well, I think again, coming back to the sort of coming of age theme that we were looking at, and you know, obviously, Frank Sinatra even though he's from uh, New Jersey, is kind of associated with New York because of his body of work. But that song kind of talks about growing up and and what that does to you in terms yeah. of uh, psychologically. Um, and a lot, of the, and a, a lot of the film, in a weird way, has this kind of melancholy about it, about, you know, how fleeting being young and having that moment can be, you know, when you get to the end and Albert says, uh, you know, you have this thing and you don't realize you've got it and then you lose it and you spend the next few years chasing it, trying to get it back again. Yeah. It was that kind of feeling. And that Frank Sinatra song, I feel very much has that feeling. It is kind of celebrates youth, but there's also a melancholy to it. We use it in montage for when all of these bands are at their height as a way of kind of saying, oh, careful, this moment's not going to last. And and yeah. it all the point in the film pivots into, you know, the, the sort of messy decline, the, the sort of good times being over in a way. Because that scene really did burn very brightly for a very short time. And it's almost, you know, when the rest of the world took hold of it and all the kind of bands influenced by those bands came along, it's, it was sort of d- diminishing returns in a way. That that um, that little melody in it, um, yeah. it's like, oh, my, it's heartbreaking. It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the light On the village green When I was seventeen And what about all the other little bits of cue? Who did you work with on that? Because I couldn't quite sort of work out who who had worked with you on that and, you know, aside from the band was, stuff. Yeah, that was a friend of ours called Zebedee Budworth. He's brilliant. Uh, what a great name. Brilliant composer, brilliant name. 
And when he... I hang out with him, we've got two members of the Magic Roundabout, so it's... Uh... <laughs> Just need Florence and a Dougal. Florence, easy. Dougal, slightly harder, I would think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's an amazing composer, and like we were able to work with him in in a in a way that really suited the project because we never, ha- you know, usually you'd get to picture lock and the score would happen, and Zebedee has the patience of a saint because we would send him a sequence and say we need something that feels like this for this mm-hmm. sequence. Yeah. He'd go away and do it. It would be brilliant. And then two weeks later, we're like, actually, that sequence isn't in the film anymore. But <laughs> so, so it was. It was. But he, he's. You know, we work with him a lot, and he's like multi, brilliant multi instrumentalist, and just like really creative, and could do things fast as demos. And then at the end, we recorded them all with like real musicians, and we wanted it to have a very contrasting feel to the music that the bands are playing. Because yeah, I feel like if it was all one kind of tone yeah so you needed those like little moments of pause to let the emotion come through and 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 you know give you breathing space yeah i think that process with zebedee and the editors andrew and sam was an amazing thing because it was very it really fluid you know we'd like dylan said we'd have a scene zebedee would write a kind of extended bit of music for that scene and then that might be re-edited or might disappear like Dylan said but it was a yeah it wasn't necessarily the sort of traditional way of, of doing it of finishing the film and then having this score done I cried at the maps bit I cried I was like it was I just found the film so emotional to watch it was just yeah it's, it's so good really really is and Thank particularly you. I think as well because also that moment where and I think that it's great that you've incorporated it in this is 9-11 you know in terms of, of of the impact that that had culturally on people in personally, but as a as a as a city, because I and I remember where I was when it happened. I was in the MTV newsroom, and my mate Kat was in New York, and I was just trying to get a hold of her. Make sure you know you, it, it takes you yeah. back there immediately. Particularly, I think the environment of the film, you know, that world that that I was in, kind of thing, and and it just it's it's something I think that no one's really particularly on the music scene, you know, in terms of talking about how it affected and not just the people making music, but people listening to music and and stuff. How did you get to that point to make that decision that you needed to incorporate it into the story? I mean, I think from the very beginning, we knew it had to be part of it, but we knew that we had to be very sensitive with it and not use yeah. it kind of, um, you know, to, in an exploitative way, like, or a sensational way. And one of the things we loved about the book was, as you say, I had never seen 9-11 approached from the perspective of a creative community. And, and and it was like that attitude that they had of like, Jesus, if this can happen in our city, we might as well just double down and do the thing that we enjoy doing or, or make create music to make sense of this. And then you also had the sort of impact of like people leaving Manhattan and going across the water to, to Brooklyn. So yeah. it, it was an essential part of the story because, you know, this scene emerged in New York almost months before the world's eyes were going to be on that city for a very different reason. So we knew it had to be in there, but we knew we wanted to see it in a different way to how perhaps you're used to seeing it presented. So when we got the archive of Paul Banks on the day of nine, you know, walking in the street and there's still bits of office paper fluttering through the air. And, you know, we were like, we couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, here's one of our characters intersecting with that moment in a way that's just unbelievable and then 
the performance that Kimya does of Anthrax shortly after, um, you know, there was real resonance. It, and, and, and Karen talking about sort of working through her grief on stage, working through her shock and grief by making her performances even more outrageous and getting lost in them. So yeah. we were always keen that that moment, which is a huge moment in human history, was made personal, was made like connected to our characters. Yeah. So yeah, it was it, it wasn't approached lightly. Yeah. We didn't also want it to like, oh, here's 9-11. Now let's jump back to yeah. Julie being grumpy about doing an interview. Like well, we tried to keep it there. So you then end up a year later at that um gig uh in the car Brooklyn. park in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah it, the the sort of specter of it had to loom over everything that followed in the film, but without it just being about that. Did Paul give you that footage? Did you did he tell you that he had it? I think actually one of his one of the I think Daniel Pessler might have said that, you know, Paul's Paul's housemate was filming loads of stuff around then. And then when we spoke to Paul, he said that I think I think this is how it what happened. He, he then said, Yeah, my flatmate or my flatmate's friend was filming at, on that day. And 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 it sort of took us about I mean those conversations we had were like the first conversations of anyone actually with Daniel and Paul and, and, and it took a good like year or so to find the person to get the footage yeah. in. So, so we kind of knew it existed, but didn't know if it, you knew it had been filmed, but didn't know if it still existed or if we could get hold of it. Yeah. I imagine as well, it just a, a really weird train of thought that just popped in my head was that that thing of kind of when you are doing something like this with, with regards to, you know, pulling in archive footage, um, you must have to get your hands on a whole load of like old machinery to like play stuff in. Do you know what I mean, though, in terms of because who's got a mini disc player these days? That kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And sort of even like a VHS player and things like that. It's it's because I was just thinking, God, I've got loads of old like tapes and stuff. I wonder what's on them. It's like I wouldn't know how to play them now because I don't have the the machinery and stuff. It's like that's kind of yeah. it's, it's such a nice kind of. You're like musical Columbos. It's brilliant. There, there was a few. Um, <laughs> we use that in our biography. Yeah. There was, there was a few mis, misdirects with that as well, though, because like you like you say, you get this stuff and someone says they've got a tape and then it takes, you know, a month to get it transferred or whatever. We had someone told us that they had filmed the very first, when they were doing an interview with the Strokes on their first, cover on the enemy that the photographer filmed it and it, that spent like a year trying to get this footage and then eventually we got a tape a vhs tape which just said strokes on it and when we when we got it transferred it was it'd been taped over and it was christmas day you know like <laughs> the adverts and whatever else so, so that, that doesn't exist anymore what was the biggest sort of gold dust that you got would you say the, the was there a piece that you were like oh man you mentioned it earlier Edith. The guys, the yeah, yeahs, and uh, Patrick Dawes, who shot that video, letting us have the footage for that was amazing. Just being able to, you know, that, every hair on my arm went on, stood on yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the video is amazing. We always thought we would use the video, but then they gave us all the footage, all the rushes from that shoot, and wow. so being able to play that that single takeout was a was like a big deal. And throughout and, the process, we kept hearing this name, Nancy Saroof. She had had a, a little early DV video camera and she was a photographer and she'd hung out with a lot of the bands. So we, it took a while to, to kind of search her down and it turned out she had a lockup in LA and in there, there was a suitcase full of like 
rolls of 35 mil film that had never been developed and then mini DV tapes and some of the stuff you see of the strokes before they're famous hanging around, hanging out on the subway had been in that suitcase for 20 years. So uh, that that stuff was amazing. Oh, amazing. God, that's so brilliant. I love as well the, I mean, I love James's story so interested in the bad influence that David Holmes was on him. Um, And I love that moment as well when he's like, we've got to get a band together. And he's like, so I spoke to my drinking buddy, Nancy, and then I just love that shot of Nancy carrying a keyboard across the pavement. Like, she's like, oh, what are we doing kind of thing? It's so brilliant. And then, and also just that kind of, that whole thing as well of the Strokes and um, Albert as well, I found really interesting. And mm-hmm. Ryan Adams trying to steal him and all that kind of stuff and being a bad influence on him. That was really, there's a story in that, I think, as well. I feel like there's a there's a whole other, other doc that can be told on that sort of side of things as well. Mm. But that was what I mean about every band having this incredible, unique narrative to themselves that's outside of the music, really. I'm there because I love these these bands and the music and stuff. And then you find out all these really fascinating, brilliant things about each and every one of them. It's so good. Thank you. The the beautiful poem as well. Walt Whitman, is that? Who, yeah. yeah. What, do you mind talking a little bit about the, that choice as well? Because it kind of bookends the film. And again, it just heightens the emotion as well. There's something about the way that it's delivered. And, and yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, we we were always keen to to sort of present New York at the beginning as this kind of mythical city that's a sort of beacon to creative people. And when we we the editor actually found the recording of that poem, and we thought it had this quality that that when we built that montage around it with Zebedee's music, that um you know it just spoke to that idea of this magical place that would be a beacon to anyone creative. And then we obviously filled it with shots of kind of iconic people from the cultural past of New York. So you've got like Andy Warhol and Velvet Underground in there. And yeah, the whole idea was to sort of set up a romantic notion of New York as a city and its potential creatively, which you then kind of contrasts with the very real journeys of these bands. And I guess the idea of bookending it was in a way to leave the audience with a question to ask, you know, do we still look at artists and musicians in the same romantic way that we did in the past or yeah. has this technological change that we've seen throughout the film changed our relationship with musicians and artists. So, you know, whether people take that away from it or not, that was kind of the intention was just to have this sort of poetic bookend to it that leaves you thinking in a way. It adds a romantic notion to that whole thing, I think, as well, because I kind of crave that that old, the old days of when, like, <laughs> you could only you could only see a band by going to see them live. The DIY way that bands had to promote themselves, you know, like sort of burning the the CDs and making their own flyers and things. There's no like social media audience to kind of like build yeah. up. You had to go out on foot at a very kind of grassroots level and and build some hype for your band. Which is amazing when you think about the strokes when they say when they came across the UK and the tour had sold out. It's kind of like, wow. When you think about that time and how everything was being talked about, how limited it was with, you know, compared to now. So I think that's incredible. I think think England played such a big part in it as well. It felt like it was happening here. Yeah. That is why some of the footage feel and the performances feel quite innocent as well, because it's, you're not being shot 
by 20 people 100 people on their mobiles you know yeah. that, uh, i think that's you know that thing of like you just said you to see a band you had to go to the gig even when you're and then when they're performing you, you know the performing their show the artists aren't thinking everyone's about to see this they're only thinking the people in this room because there might be one person with a camera so i think that's why you get a slightly different way of people being on stage where people being really or than than you do now you know i think it's i think if we were making if we were making a film about a band today we'd still be editing it now you, you could multi-cam every gig from like 700 cameras it'd be it'd be yeah great and awful yeah after I stopped crying to maps, I just then had to dance around to House of Jealous Lovers by the Rapture. It was like, yes, it was so great. Oh, man, it's brilliant. It's so great to chat to you. And congratulations on the film. It really is. It really is absolutely brilliant. And I do think that it's, you know, for everybody who was either in or around that whole time frame, it will be a beautiful kind of um, memory for them. But I also think as well for you kind of, you know, new music fans as well. It's a brilliant way to to, to kind of, this is how, you know, this was a really big moment and there was lots of great stuff going on, but also make them think about stuff, particularly like the Cardinal story, I think, as well, in particular, and mm-hmm. women in that kind of, you know, that that front row and what it what they take on board with being that. Oh, man, I could watch like a five-hour version of it, which I'm assuming there may well be somewhere at some point. Thanks so much, Dylan. Thanks. Well, it was really lovely to see you again. I appreciate your time. Oh, Thank thanks you. Much. Yeah, enjoyed it. Take care. I'll see you for the next one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
it's just this brilliant story based on this remarkable woman, uh, Meep Guys, who was a Dutch woman who risked her life to Shetler and Frank's family. Um, and it's a beautiful insight into that world and this character and just what she gave up to save this family. So it's called A Small Light. As of listening to this, there'll be two episodes up on Disney Plus for you to watch right now. Um, I watched the first two and I cannot wait to dive into the rest of them. And I'm really chuffed because Ariel Marks has composed the music and Essie has done this brilliant thing where she has, she's a kind of executive music producer because as well as the score, there are all these um, historical tracks that are feature within the time frame of this story but have been reimagined by so many brilliant artists um, and so we talk about that on next week's show so a small light up on disney plus now um, and you can hear me chat to ariel marks its composer and its uh music producer Esty heim on next week's episode of soundtracking i very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then <laughs>